It's great to gather together this morning with you, and um, I hope you've been able to just uh, center your heart and your thoughts uh, on Christ and the work that Christ has done for us, uh, and on God and what he has done for us. As I was thinking uh, through this weekend, as we all know, on Friday there were some fairly uh, heavy restrictions that were placed on our province, and um, as we look ahead, I really don't know what the future holds, and some people might say, well, Paul, what's your vision for the church? Well, I really don't have a vision for the church at this point. Um, what I do know is that God will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. And what I do know is that I can g- give you a vision, or we can get a vision of God in Christ, which will carry us through whatever we might face in six months, or in six weeks, or in three months. And so that will continue to be our goal, um, week after week, is to drive us to think about God and to drive us to reflect on Christ and to gain our stability and our foundation and our footing in Jesus Christ. And so it's no different today as we dive into Second Peter that we are going to look to the Word of God for help, for sustenance that will lead us day by day through uh, these events that we find ourselves in. Um, long, long time ago, I was just sitting there, I can't remember when, but there used to be a commercial for Smarties. When you eat your Smarties, do you eat the red ones last? Do you suck them very slowly or do you chew them very fast? And uh, that makes sense when you think about a letter. Maybe to me it does, to you it doesn't. But when you think about a letter, when you get a letter, how do you handle it? Do you read it really quickly, getting from one end to the other, or do you stop on uh, certain phrases and mull them over and, and chew them over in your heart and mind, but how do you make it from one end, or, end of the letter to the other? Uh, personally, I have a problem sometimes in that my tendency is when I receive an email or a letter is I quickly read through it, skimming it over, and assume that I get an understanding of what that letter is by the time at the end. What I realized, though, very quickly is that I've missed certain words or certain phrases or certain punctuation that changes the understanding or the intent of what the author has written. So as we come to this letter of 2 Peter, I hope that you are reading it each week. It only takes about seven minutes, uh, but it helps you just to work through it and to understand it and to grasp it. And we are going through it at a pace that will just sort of unpack phrase after phrase or Uh, sentence after sentence, and that's why we're just going slow. As we come to this particular text, we did the first two verses last week, and we realized there that Peter wanted us to recall uh, sort of the foundation of our faith, what it is that we all share in common. He talked about our identity in Christ. He talked about the, 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 the nature of our faith, that our faith is in Jesus Christ. He talked about the person of Christ and so on. So he wanted us to recall what the foundation of our faith is. It's fascinating to me that as he ended that little section, he then said to us, well, um, I hope, uh, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It was a way of, I think, Peter telling us that our faith is not static. That faith is not enough. That our saving faith is simply a starting point that opens up this whole dynamic world of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so we ask ourselves, or I ask myself, well then, how is grace and peace multiplied to me? What kind of things um, explode their, their, my understanding of those things and, and deepen my appreciation for those things in my life? How does that occur in my life. 
I think Peter anticipates that question. And so in these next couple verses, in verses 3 and 4, what Peter does is he first then settles in on what God has done for us. It's really important that we understand that grace and peace are multiplied in our hearts and lives as we understand what God has done for us. As we reflect on those things and think them through in our hearts and lives, we get a deeper understanding and appreciation for grace. We have a deeper understanding and contentment and security in the peace that God gives us. And I think one of the most important things for us to consider when we consider the gospel is that the first things of the gospel tell us about the things that God has done for us. That's where the gospel starts. It doesn't start with our response to God. It starts with understanding what God has done for us. One of the most um, familiar verses of Scripture helps us understand that. For God so loved the world that he told us to believe? No. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son into the world. God did something first, and then we are to respond to what God has done for us. That's what we'll see next week when we get into verses 5 to about verse 9. We will see then, in, in response to what God has done for us, we are then to make every effort to build on that and to grow in that. But our effort follows an understanding of what God has done for us. You see, the order is really important, not only in Peter, but in understanding the gospel. As I've already mentioned, the gospel begins with a, at least a, a basic knowledge of what God has done for us. The gospel is, first of all, not a command for us to do something, to live a certain way, or to behave a certain way. Because before we can do anything, we have to receive something. Before we can ever obey God, before we can ever receive, um, uh, or before we can ever do something for God, we have to understand what God has first done for us. And it's only when we understand what has first been given to us that we can then respond out of a heart of thanksgiving and a desire to grow in our relationship with God. So Peter begins here by focusing in, us, uh, in for us on our sufficiency in Christ. He wants us to understand that before God asks us to do anything, he has given us everything that we need in order for us to do anything. Our sufficiency is completely and totally in Christ. This is one of the things that I think we have a really hard time living out in the Christian life. We can get it in our heads when Peter uh, tells us there, well, everything that you need for life and godliness has been given to us in Christ, but we really have a hard time wrapping our heads around that sort of thing. We really have a hard time actually believing that and putting that into practice in our lives because we can seemingly come up with all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of situations in which Christ hasn't met our need or where we haven't looked for or found how Christ can supply what we need. But Peter here tells us very, very clearly, and it's backed up everywhere throughout Scripture, that our ability to live and our ability to live out the calling of the Christian life comes from God and God alone. How often do we go through life and think, 
everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I am physically comes to me from the hands of God. There is nothing in my life, there's nothing that I do that is sustained by anything other than God and his provision for me. And yet, do we live in such a way that demonstrates our complete reliance on the total sufficiency of Christ for us? Paul, in one place, says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, what he's saying is that God will give us and God will supply for us and God's kindness and generosity, his goodness, is sufficient for any situation and anything that we might face in life. All that we need, all that you need for life and godliness has been given to us by God in Christ. This has been a struggle for the people of God ever since the people of God were formed by God. We could go through the Old Testament and uh, look at passage after passage where uh, this lack of confidence in God and his resources was the problem that plagued the people of Israel. Again and again, the Israelites put their confidence in chariots, in horses, in alliances with Egypt, in fleshly wisdom, in material wealth, in military might, and in any conceivable human means possible. Anything other than the sufficiency of God and the promise of God to meet every single need that they would face in life and for godliness. And refusing to rely solely on their ample resources brought them constant failure and humiliation. That's the testimony and the example of the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And so what Peter is wanting to remind us as we begin to dive into his letter to us, what we need to embrace and commit to is that grace and peace will be multiplied to us as we understand that Christ has given us everything that we need. He is sufficient for every problem we will face, for every situation we will encounter, everything that pertains to life and godliness, everything. There is nothing outside of Christ that we need to live for Christ and to live for God. So we come back to it. He says, his divine power, who is Christ? We'll come to that. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So the first thing I want us to just think about is, is this, is what has God done for us through the knowledge of Christ? And prepositions are so important. He says, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, how? Well, he says, through Christ, through Jesus Christ. Something has been done for us. Something has been given to us. Something has been granted to us. God's gracious provision for us in Christ is a gift to us. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to purchase it. There is no need to, to go anywhere to find it. We have to receive it simply as a gift from God. And the things that, 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 that God is talking about here are not things that are available under the sun. In other words, all that we need for life and godliness is not available to us outside of God. 
It's not like there's two places or eight places we can go to find the resources that we need to live the way that God created us to live. It's, it's not like we can go to some really, really smart person and they will give us what we need for life and godliness. These are not the product of human wisdom and insight. Rather, Peter says, these things come to us through the divine power of God. All that we need for life and godliness. And it's interesting and helpful why he says his divine power. He's talking about Christ here, not God. So through Christ, our sufficiency in Christ. Why does he use his divine power? Why does he say his power? Well, everybody understood and grasped that God was divine. There was never any trouble with the divinity of God, but people in the day of Peter's world, and even in ours, really doubt the divinity of Christ. Oh, he was a really good person. He was a really moral person. Yeah, he walked on this earth, and we remember his birth at Christmas, but God? No. That's why Peter says his divine power has granted to us all things. So as there is no doubt in our hearts and minds again, that Christ is God. He is the Son of God. And as we think about that power, well, what's behind this divine power of Christ? Well, it's the power that maintains this world on its foundations. It's the power that calmed the raging sea when the disciples were out on the boat about to drown and Jesus spoke and the wind and the waves died and the disciples looked at one another and they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's the divine power that sustained Christ for 40 days in the wilderness. It's the divine power that raised the dead. It's the divine power that, that, that through that divine power, we receive everything that we need for life and godliness. Christ is able to give us that because he is God. And what is this all things then that pertain to life and godliness? I suspect that few of us, and this isn't meant as a, chastisement. It's just meant as an observation. I suspect that few of us are concerned that these words are really true when it comes to every area of our life. And the reason I say that is because our words and our actions betray that. My words and actions betray that. And I think sometimes that some Christians don't believe it at all. And you, you say, well, how do you know, Paul? Well, I know because who do they turn to for help? Where do they turn for help? When they are having a difficult time, when they are struggling in any area of life, who is the first person they turn to? Where is the first source of help that they seek? I'm guessing people might say, and I might say this, well, what do you mean by everything, Paul? Well, everything. Well, what about that? No, Everything. There's not a single circumstance in life that Christ is not sufficient to meet. That's why he says, for life and godliness. These two words cover it all. Life here is a word that is Zoe, which describes both physical life and life here on earth and life to come. It's a word that's also used to describe eternal life. For example, when speaking of the rich man, 
In the parable of, of the rich man and Lazarus, and the, the rich man uh, dies and the, the, the beggar dies, and the beggar goes into the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man goes into Hades, and he's having a conversation with a- Hades, or with, with Abraham, the, the rich man is, and he's speaking to Abraham, and Abraham says to him, remember that during your life, you received good things. Your physical existence on earth, your, your life as you lived in, remember your life from birth to death, what you experienced. So this word life doesn't just cover one aspect. It refers to the whole of our life. Or James talking to the self-confident businessman. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears a little time and then vanishes. He, he's talking about our physical existence. But the word also describes the one who has eternal life. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Your, your life as a Christian now, your eternal life, your, your, your whole life is now hidden with Christ. And so what Peter is saying here and what he's reminding these Christians of, he's reminding them of what Christ has done for them. He has given them and he is sufficient in his gift to them for every situation they will ever face on, in life here on earth or in life to come. Food, clothing, relational wisdom, emotional strength, wisdom for life, power to stand, help in temptation, everything that we need for abundant life. He can do this in part because he knows us. He made us. He, he created us. He was there when we were formed in the womb. He, he, he understands us inside and out, literally. And and Christ understands what it is to be one of us because he took on human flesh and he walked in this world and he knows what it is to rely on God. Christ gives us all things that pertain to life right up to the moment we breathe our last breath. And I was thinking of this, just going through all the circumstances. We have a number of people in our congregation right now who are probably in their last days, if not weeks, Christ is sufficient for that part of your life. Christ is sufficient to walk through you through that last valley, through that last test, through that last trial. Christ is able to help you to die well. That's part of life. He gives us all that we need for life. I was thinking that as it relates to COVID. Everything you need to deal with your fears or with your anxieties, or with your worry, everything that you need to deal with loneliness, everything that you need to deal with your anger and your urge to rebel and your impatience, everything you need to have your daily needs met, everything you need to get along with your siblings at home as your routines are out of whack, everything that you need to make decisions, everything that you need to thrive while as a body of Christ we can't meet together, all that you need for life, Christ, Christ, has granted us all the resources we need for any of those situations and every situation we will face in life, Christ is sufficient. And secondly, everything that we need for life and godliness. 
Well, this godliness, that, that, that is the sort of the, the spiritual aspect of our life, our relationship with God. Everything that we need to persevere, everything that we need for sanctification. He has given it to us in his word. He has given his spirit who lives in us. He has given us his example. He has given us the resources that we need to walk in this world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, writes Paul, who has granted us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Is there anything you need for godliness that you can't find in Christ? Is there anything that you need to live for God that you have to get somewhere outside of Christ? No, not a thing. The question we might ask then is, well, how has he given us this? For he has granted us everything that we need for life and godliness. How? Through a knowledge of him who called us by his glory and excellence. You, you understand what he's saying? He's saying that as we come to know Christ, as we enter into this saving relationship with Jesus Christ, as we have this relationship with Christ, this personal, vital, experiential relationship with Christ, we find that everything that we need comes to us and flows through us out of that relationship. This isn't a referring to a superficial knowledge of Christ. Oh, I've heard of Jesus, and I'll just ask him for help when I get into trouble. It's not simply an informational knowledge of Christ. Well, yeah, I just, I, I've read about Christ. He's a pretty good guy, and he's a pretty smart guy, and he's a pretty wise guy. Yeah, I heard he helped a blind, blind guy some few thousand years ago. I know he talked to a woman at a well. This isn't that kind of knowledge. This is a, what he's talking about, everything comes to us through this knowledge of Christ. It's an experiential, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul would say, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. In another place, he would say, I have died with Christ. I have been buried with Christ, and I have been raised with Christ. When by faith, you put your trust in Jesus Christ. When you come to a conviction of your lostness outside of God and your need to get back into a relationship with God, when you turn to God through Christ, and as we learned last week, that we come to uh, uh, faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are made new. We are born again. We become a new creature. For the first time ever, we are alive. And out of that life, we begin to experience the resources that Christ gives us. He says, through a knowledge of him who called you. Do you remember the first moment that you were aware that Jesus was calling you? Do you, do you remember where you were or what you were doing the, the first time all of a sudden you said, whoa, I hear him? There's invitations everywhere in Scripture of Christ or in the, new, in, the, in the Gospels, come to me and I will give you rest. Maybe that's how you experienced Christ first, exhausted with life, exhausted with temptation, exhausted with sin. And all of a sudden you heard Christ say to you, come to me and I'll give you rest. Or Jesus cries out in another place, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There's got to be more to life than this. 
There's got to be more to my marriage. There's got to be more to my job. There's got to be more than just having a whack of money. And Christ says, come to me. Whoever is thirsty and drink. And he gives us a water that satisfies the thirst of our soul. Jesus in another place said, come to me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I think it was Augustine who said the heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. There is this hunger and this thirst, which is a spiritual hunger and thirst, which is not satisfied by anything in this world. And you might have experienced that, and all of a sudden you heard Christ speaking to you. It says, I can satisfy that hunger with a bread that you've never tasted. I can satisfy that thirst with a water that you've never had before. And you heard his call to you. All these resources for life and godliness come to us through a saving knowledge of Christ who called us. Come to me. I love these words. He called us by his own glory and excellence. And I, I don't, I think the, the translation we use, which says he called us to his glory and excellence, I, I don't think that's the best way of putting it. I think the, that, that word is best translated by his glory and excellence. It's an adjective that is describing the glory and excellence of Christ. And it, it, means, it means something like his own peculiar glory or excellence. And so we need to come through Christ or we come to Christ and we understand his sufficiency um, for us and that he's given us everything because there's this peculiar reality about Christ. Well, what is it about Christ? Well, he says by his own glory. Well, glory is a word that's only ever used to refer to God. Glory belongs to God alone. God is glorified in our salvation. And when we have our eyes open in salvation, we have our eyes open to the glory of God in Christ, which draws us savingly to him. A true saving knowledge of Christ begins by realizing his glory, his divinity, his deity, and his excellence. I think that's a reference to his human nature. He lived a perfect life. He was morally pure in thought and intent and in motive and action. His character was flawless. And so we are saved when we come to put our faith and trust in the Son of God and the Son of Man, the, the God, Jesus Christ, and the man, Jesus Christ. Both of those, a knowledge of those in initial is necessary for our, sa our salvation. We are saved through a true knowledge of him. We've been called to this supernatural life. You see, loved ones, you didn't make yourself a Christian. is isn't something you drummed up one day and said, I think I'm going to follow God today. No, we were off track. We were lost. We were headed the wrong way. We were headed for destruction. And all of a sudden, Christ called us by his glory and his excellence. Come to me. And I will give you everything that you need for life and godliness. Paul's prayer for the church was, was that we would know the power of Christ. 
his prayer for the church that was that their understanding might be enlightened to know certain things, the, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. This power is so great that there's nothing he can compare it to other than the resurrection power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. This is what we need to experience, loved ones. We need to know Christ. And, you know, if you're searching, it's good to have a knowledge of Christ. But at some point, you have to trust him. You have to believe him. You have to say, I will throw my weight upon you, Jesus. Because everything I've tried has failed. But I will believe your word where it says, I will never face a situation again where you won't help me. And so Peter begins by reminding these people, first of all, what God has done for them through Christ. And the second is what God has done for us through the perfections and the promises of Christ. He says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Again, why? So that through them, you might share in the divine nature. God has already done so much for us, but he doesn't end, does he? He, he says that Christ, through his perfect deity and his humanity, through our knowledge of him, that he has granted to us his very precious and very great promises. Not just any old promises, but precious or valuable Great or magnificent. I don't know if you ever, ever sat down and just kind of reflected on some of the promises of God. I just jotted down on my notepad promises that, that as I reflected on them, I really began to see these are valuable and these are magnificent. I just put some promises down in two categories, godliness and life. As it relates to godliness, God has promised to adopt me. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. The promise of new life that if I put my trust in Christ that I will be made a new creature in Christ. I will be born again. The promise of justification that if I trust Christ God will give to me, God will credit to my account Christ's righteousness a promise of, of, of perseverance that, that as I walk with God, he will not let me fall fully and finally. He will hold me up as we sang. Promises of preservation that God will hang on to me, that God will never let go of me, that his love will always hang on to me. Promises of sanctification that God who began a good work in me will be sure to finish that work. Promise of glorification that one day I will be made perfect in body and in soul. Does not the thought of these multiply grace and peace to you? Are those not valuable and magnificent promises? What about promises of life? 
that God will give you strength for any circumstance, that, that God will guide you when, when the path is dark, that God will help you when you face trouble, that God will give you instruction when you lack knowledge, that God will give you wisdom when you can't make sense of all the knowledge that you have, that God will provide for your daily needs, that God will help you when you're facing temptation, that God will be with you and pick you up when you fail, that God will help you deal with fear or anxiety or worry, this great promise of the return of Christ and how that shapes and, and, and boundaries our life. Again, are those not magnificent and valuable promises? Why do we not think Christ is sufficient for us? Why would we want to look to any other means or any other person or any other source of help when all of these are ours in Christ Jesus? And to what end? Why has he given us these valuable and precious promises? Are they like valuable things that we stick in frames and hang on our wall, maybe like little scripture verses? Are they things that maybe we donate to museums so that other people can walk by and say, wow, those are beautiful and those are magnificent words? No, these, these promises have immense practical value. Because notice what Peter says again, that the preposition is matter, matter, that through them, some, I, I receive something through these promises, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's just, it's, it's massive. He's saying that these promises restore God's original intent in us, these promises Re reinforce what God has started in us. These promises build on this new life that I have. As the image of God that God first gave man in the garden when we were created in the image and likeness of God, that image is now being restored again and again in our life. And we are being now transformed into the likeness and the image of of Christ, and that when we finally get to the end of that restoration, we will be, as Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah 31, 31, unable to sin, unable to disobey. We will be made perfect, not God's, but that divine image will be fully restored in our lives. We will be as we were truly meant to be, and that in part takes place as we trust and believe and put our confidence in the promise that God has given us. And what else has he done for us? Just, Peter just keeps going on. He says, having rescued us. Do you see that in there? Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's amazing, isn't it? Promises of God are a means through which we escape the corrupting influence of the world that we live in. We are free. We've been rescued. We are being kept safe and we will be led to safety. What is pictured here is a successful escape or flight from the dangers of the world in which we live, from the effects of our fallen nature, from the sinfulness of the decaying world around us. From, from the corruption of this world. The, the word corruption is the word that's used to describe a decaying organism and the stench that goes with it. 
And this corruption, this stench, this decay is caused by the, the evil desires and the sin in us. And it's the promises of Christ that rescue us from this. For these are some of the scriptures. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. Here's the escape. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What about Ephesians? We, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, you see, the, you see the contrast here? By nature, we were once children of wrath. But Peter tells us now through the precious and magnificence of Proverbs, of, of promises, we are now being shaped in the nature and the image of God. What a rescue! Or Ephesians 4.22, we have been taught to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's what Peter is saying and to be renewed by the spirit of your minds. So we get a picture here of what God has done for us. We'll get to this a little bit later, but I just want us to, to, to get a little bit of a picture of this, this escape from the corruption that is in the world by just noting the account of Noah. Noah lived in a world where it is described that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'd want out of that world. But we read a little bit later in Peter that God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. How did he preserve Noah? Through the ark. How did he preserve Noah? Because God said to Noah, I will send a flood. And Noah believed that. And he believed that God would rescue him. And he did. We have another example of this in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God turned them to ashes, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. But he rescued Lot. So loved ones, do you see what God has done for you in Christ? Do you see what he's rescued you from? Do you see what Peter is trying to help us recall in our minds, no matter how long we have been a Christian? Are you convinced that God is bringing you to safety through Christ Jesus? Are you assured that he is working in you and will not stop working until he is finished, until he has completed what he has started? Do you see the greatness and the beauty of the gospel? Do you see how that before Peter tells us to do anything, he first tells us about the grace of God through what God has done for us, how he has granted to us his divine power, how he has granted to us his divine promises that through them we might live and be godly and that through them we might escape the corruption of this world and share in the divine nature. All that we need for life and godliness, all that we need to become partakers of the divine image, God has already given to us before we do a thing. Do you know God? Can you say that you are a partaker of the divine image? Have you come to a knowledge of him, a saving knowledge of Christ? Have you experienced the, the, 
the, the bread of life? Have you experienced the, the water that Christ gives that satisfies your thirst? Will you listen to the call of Jesus? He says, come to me. And I will give you bread and I will give you water that will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul and of your life. This is what Peter wanted these Christians to recall. He wanted them to marvel in the vast riches and the sufficiency of Christ for them. May God help us to do that this week. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you have done for us. It's truly amazing, Father. It's inexplainable, but it helps us grow in grace and peace. It helps those two things be multiplied in our lives. We certainly don't deserve any of it. We certainly can't earn any of it. You just, out of the greatness of your heart, of the incredible mercy that is your character, have bestowed on us these incredible gifts. Father, I don't know what your people are facing this week. I don't know what they're facing today. But I do know that as we turn to you, we will find everything that we need for any situation that we face to help us live this life that you have given us on this earth and the life that you have given us that will sustain us into eternity. Everything that we need to live a life that is pleasing to you, you have given it to us. Oh, Father, may we find our sufficiency in Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.